Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. So tell me about this movie, Miss Wolf. I don't have a lot of time. I'm probably the busiest man in Hollywood, in fact. Suzanne, call Eddie Murphy and tell him how busy I am. Okay, sugar, let's hear it. Okay, um, the stars are these four outcasts, and they're ninjas. Ninjas are like samurai, right? So that's like the Magnificent Seven, but there's four? Suzanne, give me Steve McQueen, Eli Wallach, Charles Bronson, James Coburn. Uh, some of them might be dead. If they are, give me Robert Vaughn. Well, these ninjas are a little different. Uh, for one thing, they're turtles. So. Turtles? Turtles? You want me to make a movie where the actors are turtles? Hold on a sec. <laughs> Marty, it's Alan. Help me out here. Was Gary Cooper a turtle? <laughs> no? How about Richard Gere? Is he a turtle? <laughs> no? Just checking, Marty. See you at the polo lounge. We'll talk prostates. <laughs> it's a funny thing, Miss Wolf. No big stars are turtles. So I can make this movie, but my wife, my kids, they wind up in the poorhouse. Myself, they put me in the Laughing Academy. But these turtles are mutants. I don't make movies about religion. And they have special powers and weapons like swords and nunchucks. Young lady, I didn't get where I am to have you use language like that in my office, three inches from a framed picture of my mother. She should rest in heaven. Oh, I'm so sorry. She's dead. Actually, she's in Arizona. I mean, eventually. The thing is, I really believe these Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles could really be the next big thing. Young lady, I have one word for you. No go. Teenage Nunchuck Methodist Turtles are a... <laughs> Suzanne, how many words is no go? Mm. Okay, I have two words for you. You're going to be sorry, Mr. Goldmeyer. There's going to be toys and live tours and movies and television and flashlights and underpants and backpacks. And, well, you get the picture. And that's our show today, how one idea hatched by two very different young men here in New England started a 30-year run that's still running. And now the guy who got the Power Rangers hooked on morphine, Colin McEnroe. I said to Tommy, try some. Just try some. Try some morphine. Uh, all right, so, uh, and I feel bad about that now for a whole bunch of different reasons. It just didn't end that well. All right, so we're not talking about the Mighty Morphin Power Rangers here. We're talking about something considerably more durable than the Mighty Morphin Power Rangers. Uh, in fact, uh, well, no, we'll get into that later. We're talking about the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, who are as so fresh uh, 30 years after their inception that I was at a multiplex last night watching Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles uh, because they have a movie out right now. But they started back in 1984. Uh, they started here in New England. Some of their genesis, as you will hear, uh, took place, I believe, in kind of the northwest corner of Connecticut, but they're really kind of a, more of a Northampton Amherst concept. And let me tell you some of the people that you're going to meet as we go along here today. Well, we couldn't do a show like this without having at least one culture dog. That's <laughs> what is called a minion, I think. Uh, so Sam Hatch, culture correspondent and film critic, otherwise known as one of two culture dogs. You can hear him every Sunday night on WWUH. And he's here on this show an awful lot, too. Randall uh, Lobb is the um, writer and director of the documentary Turtle Power, the definitive history of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. And I would like to emphasize the word definitive. No question that you have ever had about any aspect of the, the, the genesis and development of all the various 
manifestations of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles is um, overlooked in this and or underexplored. It's very definitive. Jim Lawson is a comic artist who worked on the original TMNT. I'm going to start saying that now. Comic uh, series. He's based in Northampton. Uh, and joining us on the phone here at the beginning uh, is Kevin Eastman. Kevin Eastman is one of those two young men who developed this uh, remarkably durable idea, this franchise. Uh, I don't know what else to call it. Uh, way back in the uh, mid-1980s. Uh, so, uh, Kevin Eastman, we're going to start with you. And, you know, uh, the intro that we just heard uh, is probably something that resonates a little bit with you now that you've really had decades of experience, decades of exposure to the way that mass culture really is developed. You know, there are there are so few original ideas, so many things that you see at the movie theater look a lot like the last thing that you saw at the movie theater. You kind of know how things are going to go. So Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles uh, was an, an outlandishly original idea, and I assume the, one of the reasons for that is you weren't in Hollywood and you weren't trying to have a huge mass market success. Am, am I correct about that? Oh, uh, all that and then some—that's for sure. I mean, I was—I I, I don't think I could have been further away from Hollywood except in front of my TV or the local uh, movie theater. But uh, yeah, I grew up in a very small town in Maine. Um, read Jack Kirby comics. He's my hero, one of my biggest inspirations, and. Um, uh, when I met Peter Laird and we, we mind melted and bonded over Kirby and our love of all things pop culture, I guess, comic books mainly, and uh, just had a lot of similarities and tastes that when we came up with the idea of the Turtles, it was just something <laughs> that really started as a joke. It was came out of uh, a couple of guys being just big geeks and came from big hearts and wanting to be cartoonists. Um, and probably never, you know, probably never thought would actually see that come true. And when we came up with the turtles, we sort of put everything that we loved about comics and and uh, pop culture at that time into it. And assuming nobody's going to read it but us and maybe some of our family members that would give copies to. But yeah, it was it was it was pretty much came from you know, you know the inside out, I guess. You know, uh, towards the end of Randall Lobb's movie, uh, uh, your your partner uh, in turtledom, uh, Mr. Laird, is talking about how he uh, booted the comics back up, I think uh, sometime around 2001, and that people would buy the comics and look at them. And, and he, Peter Laird, said that he would often hear from people, yeah, I don't like it as much as the original kind of Eastman and Laird uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. And then he, Peter Laird, says in this documentary, you know, there is something about the blend of our two sensibilities, maybe, uh, that was was intrinsic to this, that uh, he doesn't, I don't think, use Rogers and Hammerstein, but I will. I mean, you know, that you got Rogers, <laughs> you got Hammerstein. Uh, well, that's pretty obvious. You need words, you need music. But, but there's also, you know, sort of differences in temperament that somehow or other uh, he thinks maybe came out in the original uh, concept here. And could you... Is there any way you can sketch that out more? I mean, are there aspects of your two respective personalities that were essential to create this thing? Oh, in, in so many ways. I mean, you know, the the, the most awesome awesome Peter Laird was just, uh, you know, um, he was he was a bit older than I am, uh, still is actually, and um, he was much more fine tuned in his art style. I mean, he could draw so much better than I could on so many things, and he was um, so much better read i mean he read lots of lots of novels and things like that i was still you know i couldn't get my nose out of comic books for the most part um and i was but you know both of us had the same passion and i had sort of you know i leaned really heavily towards this jack kirby dynamic style and my layouts and some of my pacing and some of the story stylings that i did and it really was just a nice combination of we played off each other's strengths um we made sure that we blended 
each other's art styles on every single page and, you know, right down to, um, you know, penciling the whole issue together, passing the pages back and forth. So there was some drawing from both of us on each page and we wouldn't start inking it until we finished, you know, penciling the whole issue. Then we'd sort of pass it back and forth again. So it was a nice blend of, you know, the best of, of both of us. And again, I think it was the, the passion, I guess, is comes across and all that. And especially the first, I guess it was 15 or 16 issues, which we call the original series, you know, issues one through 11. And then we did these four one-shot issues featuring um, individual turtles. But that was really the heart and soul of how we learn to draw comic books. And we put everything that we loved about comic books into those stories. Because I think the longest story I'd done up until that time was maybe an eight-page story or 10-page story. And I think Peter might have done about the same. Um, so here we were getting paid to draw comics for the first time. We were living the dream. And we would approach each issue by going like, man, what's the coolest thing we've ever, you know, is it, you know, Planet of the Apes, is it Star Wars, is it something we can use as inspiration and, and take it in that direction? Um, and just nobody, we had no editors. We, we were the bosses. We did everything. We answered the phone. We did the lettering. We did everything. And so <clears throat> nobody could tell us what to do, what not to do. So we just put all the things that we loved about comics into it. And the blend was, was perfect. It was, you know, really some of the best memories ever for me working with Pete on that original series and well, for many years after. You know, uh, Kevin, I have another member of your original team here. Jim Lawson is here in studio with me. And so, Jim, I'm going to ask you for a second. I mean, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, as we, I was saying before we went on the air, in the current movie, there's a great moment where I, I think it's Megan Fox, uh, one of the humans in the movie, says to, to these four beings, so you guys are Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles? And one of them says, you know, when you say it that way, it sounds weird. Uh, and um, so this is either, you know, the coolest, freshest, most original idea in the world that anybody's having in, in, in the mid-1980s or one of 10 million really, really terrible ideas uh, that people ha have had. Uh, and, and so did you know right away that it was the former rather than the latter? When they, when they came to you and said Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, did you go, oh, definitely? <laughs> no, I, I don't think I did. Uh, you know, but... I think that's part of the the genius of it is is it was so kind of crazy and out there and ridiculous and uh, uh, I I think you you had to you had to think about it twice or look at it twice or or there was curiosity you know what what is that what could that possibly be. Um. <laughs> well, we had we we are no stranger to startlingly original ideas here at this show. So we had the fascinatingly novel concept of sending somebody out with a microphone into the street and asking them uh, what they think of uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. I know, crazy, right? Let's see how that goes. What do you think about the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles? I think they rock because they're full of fun and they like pizza. I don't know. I thought they were cool because, like, you know. N turtles that were like ninjas, like a boring animal is a ninja. Like what? What? What's better than that? I mean, I don't know any. I mean, I know the name, but I don't know what they are. I don't know anything about them at all. I loved that show, and I had all the toys, even like the whole underground sewer. Well, I've heard of them. I watched some of the show when I was littler. It was good. Um, I didn't watch it, but I knew of it. I played the video game a lot. It was just like the arcade game, and it was really fantastic, and I loved it. They're green, and they do 
karate moves or something. I don't know that much, and they're named after Italian Renaissance artists. I had t-shirts, I had action figures, and a stuffed Ninja Turtle. Yeah, I got him when I was two, and he was my favorite stuffed animal. My brother threw him in the pool, and his fur got all wrinkly. Made me pretty sad. <laughs> I loved him. Actually, like the second person or third person sounded really high. Uh, <laughs> all right. So, uh, by the way, as we go along here, 860-275-7266, we have lots of guests to talk to, but we'd be happy to hear from you, too. 860-275-7266. Kevin Eastman, while we have you, I mean, I, I've been trying to do some deep thinking about uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and, and what, what they actually were or why they were so successful. And maybe that's a stupid idea. Maybe things are just popular and fun because they're popular and fun. But it does seem like you did catch a couple of waves here. One of them, you know, for want of a better term, was kind of that postmodern idea of, uh, of, of something that makes fun of the thing that it loves, right? It's spoofing something and doing it kind of seriously, more or less at the same time. That, that you know, in all the ways that you loved Jack Kirby, who, who embodied a certain kind of epic seriousness and beauty in, in, in Marvel comic books. Um, so you've got that there, but then these are turtles, you know, and they're kind of goofy too. Yeah, you know, it, it's it's such a, you know, you know, I've talked about it. You know, Pete and I have talked about it for thirty years, and 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 I think we occasionally come close to trying to describe what feel about them or, or what what resonates and why it's resonated. You know, yet again here, thirty years later, with a whole new group of young kids. Um, but it's, um, I think this. I feel like again, I'm repeating myself. I think the story just came from a great place. That, you know, a lot of heart and soul in it, and you know, was had some similarities to. You know, there were always. Um, you know, um, comic book groups of characters. Say the Avengers were mutant characters, and they all—you know, you had the tough one, the more sympathetic one. You had different character relationships. Uh, the X-Men, the same thing. Uh, you look at comics like the New Mutants, which was um, very popular around the time that Pete and I were, were developing the idea. Um, you know, Frank Miller's Daredevil, which is a big, big inspiration, you know, to us. And, and I think we just, you know, put this, um, th- all that. Camaraderie, the, the the brotherhood, the father figure, um, the fact that they're misfits. I think that's why a lot of kids, I think, like um, comics or like turtles that feature, you know, misfit characters. I think a lot of times, I know I felt like I was a a mutant and a misfit growing up in, in a small town in Maine because I was the only kid reading comic books and living in this fantasy world. Um, but I think the fact that they're they're turtles and not, you know, say black, white, or Asian, I think it can relate to just a lot of different cultures of of, of humans. Um, and they find something in it. They like, you know, Michelangelo the Joker. They they like that. They like Leonardo the Leader. That's always the first question I ask when I'm at, at shows or doing conventions is, who's your favorite turtle and why? And and they're very specific about it. And it, it really speaks a lot about their own their own personality. But all in all, they're always all good kids, and they love it. Um, you know, head to toe. And that I think that's the coolest thing about this year. I've done more shows than I've ever done. Um, and what I've noticed, what's been so cool is all the kids that grew up on the Turtles, um, you know, when they were seven, eight, nine, ten years old, when they started watching it, now have kids of their own, and they'll come up to a signing, and they'll have one or two items that they've had since childhood that I'll sign this, you know, <laughs> completely beaten up and read to death, well-loved, I call it, comic book, and some old toy that they that they still have, and then their their child would have, you know, the Halloween, Turtle Halloween costume on, and have some of the new action figures. The fact that it worked... And kids related to it the first time, 
and found something special and stayed with it all that you know all those years and now it's generational where you know it's captured the you know the minds of you know younger kids again today to me is is, is overwhelming humbling um mind-blowing and just beyond cool you know, um, one question that I had for us, and Sam Hatch is here, and he actually brought some memorabilia, which you can sort of air sign. You know, you can, like, sign <laughs> sign that in the air of where you're sitting. And, uh, but, but Sam, you know, for you as somebody who's a real sort of culture observer, one thing that I was wondering about, and I'm just not a good enough culture critic to, 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 to have a firm opinion on this, but I'm thinking 90, 1984, and I'm thinking the other thing that these guys are is maybe the beginning of an Asian aesthetic that gets bigger and bigger. You know, uh, not that it hadn't happened before, and obviously they owe a little something to the Karate Kid, uh, but really, you know, in the next decade, it really is a, a lot of very Asian-influenced pop culture, uh, whether we're talking about Pokemon and Pikachu and all that kind of stuff, or I mean, so many different things, just the, the, the real arrival of manga and the arrival of anime, and, and it's just gone on and on, and now it's K-pop, and I'm pretty sure within <laughs> 10 years, you know, PBS Masterpiece Theater will be Korean, and it'll be hosted by Psy or something. But um, <laughs> but um, but this is, I don't know, Sam, this is kind of a beginning. This has got kind of, from the very beginning, it has kind of an Asian, obviously, ninja look to it. And uh, that period was, uh, you know, there had been a lot of anime shows on television over here, you know, Battle of the Planets and Star Blazers, but that was when the, the Robotech phase was just starting to creep in, and that was kind of what created a whole generation of anime fans. Uh, but at the same time, the ninja aspect is something that uh, should definitely not be overlooked because the mid-'80s, there was a ninja explosion. Uh, Shokasugi films all over Cinemax. There was American Ninja and this ninja, that ninja. Uh, so, yeah, it was that, that ultimate culmination of, of those, uh, you know, Eastern sensibilities and, yeah, ninjas. I mean, you can't go wrong with those. You know, the other thing um, that I wondered about, Jim Lawson, uh, you're the person who really observed this. If this were software instead of a comic book, it would have been kind of open source, at least in the sense that uh, m- my understanding, watching Randall Lobb's uh, documentary, and we'll be weaving him to, into this conversation very soon, is that you guys were allowed, it wasn't sort of this incredibly tight brand control. You can only do this. You can only draw this this way. It's, it's got to be this certain way that, that the people who worked on it originally had a little bit of flexibility to bring individual visions to this? Is that fair? Yeah, ab- absolutely. Uh, you know, we were we were all more or less working together, playing together. Uh, you know, all the relationships in the studio, the, the bunch of guys that work there, we were all really, really tight. And I, I think there was a lot of uh, trust there. You know, we all uh, were there for the same reason, for the Turtles. And uh, I think Kevin and Pete felt, I don't, I don't know, you know, ask Kevin if he backs me up on this, that... that uh, you know, some of the duties there, uh, you, you know, you could you could dole out the work to different people and know that that it was going to be handled correctly and respected and that, that you know, we all love the, love the turtles. So and Kevin Eastman, that's an interesting way to work. Right. To, I mean, you, on the one hand, you can be Walt Disney and absolutely you can't have Mickey Mouse smoking in one movie or something. You know, uh, you can be Walt Disney and completely, <laughs> absolutely, although that would be funny um, uh, and absolutely control every bit of it. But it sounds like what you wanted at least initially or what you wound up with was a very sort of multi-person creative enterprise where a lot of people could begin to shape some of this yeah oh totally i mean that was what was so cool was that you know when we met you know guys like jim lawson and mike dooney and and dan berger ryan brown um steve levine you know so, so many of the original core crew we were fans of their work first it was like we'd they'd 
we'd see them at a, at a comic book show or they'd show us, you know, samples. We got to be friends and, and fans of their work first. And so when we started expanding a little bit of the Mirage Publishing, we published one of Jim's first projects, Spade Biker and Michael Dooney's Gizmo and, and that kind of stuff. And, and the more they we got to be friends and, you know, the Turtle universe was expanding, um, we were already, again, fans of theirs. So when we said, you know, when we said, hey, do you have any ideas for a turtle story? Or they would come to us with an idea with a turtle story. We wanted to see them just cut loose and do, you know, anything but having them drink beer and smoking. So, <laughs> no, um, but have them do, you know, have fun with it and, and have that freedom to bring in, you know, all their own personal influences and inspirations and, and put it into a turtle story or put a, you know, that kind of story into the turtle universe. And um, a lot of times it would just be a quick, you know, basic outline. And then we'd watch Jim, who's just the ultimate machine at penciling and, you know, so prolific. Um, just We'd just watch the pages roll in and just be grinning year to year when we'd, you know, see the work that these guys were doing. So, and that was, that was a really exciting time because we had, you know, the guys in the studio that were doing the regular Mirage Black and White series. We had a bunch of other guys that were working on the, uh, uh, the Archie more TV kid-friendly series. Um, that was being produced in-house. Um, we had, you know, Pete and I were consulting with um, and working on the, the animated shows. So we were, you know, getting hit with some awesome creative talent all over the turtle spectrum, if you will. Um, and it was it was really energizing, draining at times, but it was really energizing and exciting. And we'd often see ideas that these guys would come up with that Pete and I didn't see in the turtles ourselves, if you will. Like, well, I never thought about that or never thought about that angle or that, that story or that particular take. And that, you know, then it got our own juices flowing and, you know, the creativity just flowed out of the studio like crazy. Um, Kevin Eastman, uh, we're going to go to break in just a second here. Let me ask you one thing, though. I mean, it, it's interesting because obviously you've had the kind of success that everybody who ever worked, you know, particularly in, in, in sort of an underground or alternative uh, kind of publication, alternative kind of medium, dreams of, hopes for. I mean, I guess there are some people who don't even want that, but most people do. You've got it. You've had it. You've had really one of the most successful franchises uh, of the last 30 years, if not the. Um, and, and obviously, therefore, you are... I would imagine a rather wealthy uh, individual. But I hear in your voice like, like this was the best time. It almost sounds like before you got all this stuff, as great as it must be to, to, to have the success and the money, I almost hear a longing a, a little bit for, for 1984. Oh, for sure, 100%. It was, you know, it was, um, you know, it's, uh, it's hard to put into words, I mean, in so many ways, because it really was um, a dynamic um you know, especially the days that Pete and I were sitting, literally passing pages back and forth. That was just, you know, I, that's, you know, my lifelong all-time favorite memories besides the birth of my son, for example. You know what I mean? It's just one of those things that's just so, so special. Um, and I do, I miss those days a lot. I, I miss, um, you know, brainstorming with Pete, brainstorming with the guys. And, and uh, um, I always said that, you know, when a fan or, you know, I'm doing a, a you know, a talk at, at one of the comic conventions or something. And they say, when, when was the moment when you knew you had a successful uh, run here? You knew you had a success with the turtles. And to me, it was the time Pete called me up on the phone. <clears throat> I was in Portland, Maine at the time he was, he had moved down to Connecticut and we just gotten the pre-orders in for turtles issue two. And I think it was about 15,000 copies. And he did run some numbers. He said, do you know, with, at 15,000 copies, what it costs us to make them, we can make about, you know, after all sales were done and everything, we'd make about $2,000 each. Um, we could pay our rent. We could eat all the macaroni and cheese we want. We could draw comic books for a living. I literally quit the job I had. I moved down <laughs> to Connecticut, and that was, for me, the, the ultimate. That was when the dream really came true that, you know, we got to draw comic books for a living. And, and, you know, with all the blessings and all the things that have happened since, which are just, 
again, it's such a huge honor and it's humbling and I feel unworthy half the time, but it's like, that's probably the best, best memory I ever have of, of the turtles is, uh, when I get to draw for a living and work with Pete. Uh, a little bit like hearing your song on the radio for the first time. Kevin Eastman, thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, I appreciate it. Thanks very much for having me. All right, we're going to take a break. We're going to come back with Randall Law, who wrote the, who wrote, he made the documentary and did write it too, uh, about uh, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. We got more Sam Hatch. We got more Jim Lawson. We'll take your phone calls at 860-275-7266. Be the first person to say Kawabunga on WNPR. Did you guys have a favorite turtle? Donatella. I like Mikey. I don't know why. I thought he was really cool. And he was like the fun one, the like goofy one. I can't tell them apart. I know they have different colors, but I'm colorblind. Yeah, mine was Raphael. Yeah, I'd say Michelangelo. Purple turtle. Purple, Donatello. <laughs> um, I was a big fan of the purple one, which was Donatello, I believe, with the staff, and he was the smart one, so I liked him best. All right, and Wolfie's saying Raphael. Really? I wouldn't have guessed you for a Raphael. Oh, Raphael right. guy, yeah. All right, huh? so uh, <laughs> here in the studio with us, uh, Jim Lawson, one of the comic artists who worked in the original TMNT comic series based in Northampton. Uh, Sam Hatch from the Culture Dogs, and uh, with us uh, on a studio connection is Randall Lobb. Uh, he is the uh, writer and director of the documentary Turtle Power, the definitive history of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Um, Randall Lobb, this uh, documentary is clearly a labor of love. You went everywhere that you could go. You talked to everybody that you could talk to uh, about this. I assume that means that, I mean, this wasn't some kind of random spin-the-dial choice. I assume that the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles started out as a very important cultural influence for you. Am I correct about that? Well, no, no? you are not correct. <laughs> you were going to uh, make a movie about something completely different. I was trying to make a movie about the Power Rangers yep. that got screwed up with yeah. the shells and all that. <laughs> right. No, uh, I was working with a young cinematographer, and Jim will remember Isaac Elliott Fisher. He's a lifelong Turtle fan. No, no, and, I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's plaguing everyone along with me and Mark Hussey. No, my, I have a business partner, Mark Hussey, and we're small-town guys who who saw technology that is emerging and has been emerging for 10 years as a way of, of kind of leveling the playing field from a media perspective. And we knew we were good workers and we knew we were quality artists as well. And we were looking for some kind of niche project upon which we could work our magic. And we had done a few things with Isaac and he approached us outside a coffee shop and said, you know, I have a great idea for a documentary. Would you like to help me with it? And he said, I want to do a documentary on the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. And I said, no way. And my partner at the exact moment said, yeah, that sounds great. And the reason why I said no is it was on my radar because I actually picked up issue one in 1984. And I believe it was right around the same week as Marvel's Secret Wars came out. And I looked at that title and I thought, wow, that's, that's crazy. And I thought it was crazy on purpose, not knowing that it was, you know, uh, kind of a grassroots, very independent thing. I thought it was a plan. And I was 19 at the time, and I was thinking, oh, this is to take advantage of the comics boom to try and, you know, hit some young people. And the, and the guy in the shop said, no, 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 Mark Asquith is his name, Silver Snail Comic Shop. He said, no, 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 pick it up and look at it. 
And I picked it up and I could see, oh, Frank Miller. Oh, Jack Kirby. Oh, Cerebus, independent. Like it was very cool. And it was on my radar from that. But when it transitioned and became this explosion, you know, I was much older than the target market. So what happens is when, when he suggested this, this concept, I thought, Immediately, oh, it'll be fraught with rights issues and all kinds of problems. It'll be very expensive documentary. But then I, in, in the next, literally the next millisecond, I thought, wait a minute, here's the niche. Here's a group of people uh, who love the turtles lifelong. They're going to be interested in something we can make. And, and I totally underestimated how popular and how successful and how awesome the franchise was. I underestimated the number of fans. And I underestimated the franchise in itself. And now I count myself as a Turtle fan in a, in a much deeper way than I anticipated. I'm a fan of Jim. I'm a fan of Peter. I'm a fan of Kevin and Steve and all the people involved personally. So it sounds crazy. Uh, Jim may say, how dare you? But uh, I feel like I'm in the same shell that they're in, in a way now. And I have, I have you know, skin in the game with this this pair uh, this uh, pair of creators and and the world that has come out from them well you know one of the things that you uh, do in the in the movie is kind of just sort of uh, talk to uh, the people who who were just hit by this first wave uh, and who became uh, teenage mutant and ninja turtle fans so I've got one of those uh, here in the studio here's <laughs> Sam Hatch uh, I mean you were sort of perfectly poised to be a Connecticut based teenage mutant ninja turtle fan and I take it you were absolutely uh, early on there was uh, information about it in the comics buyers guide which is the variety for comic fans back in the day and it was just one of those things you, you saw and you're like hmm, I got I have to check this out and uh, it the, that first issue came out I think it was only 3,000 printed and it was it was a bomb I, it, it was just explosion all over uh, the the conventions you were all over the floor everybody was talking about it. Uh, the the prices shot up. Everybody was looking for a first printing. Uh, there was even a, a guy at one point who was uh, modifying third printings and reselling them as first printings because they were going for up to $150 at the time. Uh, they were always, you know, the first comic you would see on on the panel behind the dealers on, on at the uh, at the the dealer rooms. And uh, yeah, it was it was nuts. And I, I remember going to the bookie in East Hartford for uh, my first uh, meeting with. Uh, Kevin and Peter, and they were doing signings. It was a very low-key event. Not that many people there, surprisingly, because it was really early on a Saturday. But, uh, yeah, I count myself lucky to be part of that you know, that group, and especially Connecticut. I mean, uh, having uh, you know, Mirage operating out of Connecticut for a while, we had a little bit more access uh, than some of the people out in California. It was like living in Liverpool. It was. Yeah, yeah the, 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 the Beatles uh, were, in this case, turtles. Yeah. Um, so, I, Sam, I'm going to stay with you for a second, but I'm going to explore this with, with all the other guests. And by the way, if you've got your own Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle story to tell or a question about it, 860-275-7266. You may also tweet us at WNPR Colin. Our tweet master, Greg Hill, is tweeting right back at you right now, WNPR Colin. But so, Sam, there's there's a thing that happens when something becomes popular that was uh, that existed within a certain subculture before this. And you're describing the subculture, really. In other words, you were reading uh, The Buyer's Guide. You were going to these conventions. You were aware of this kind of stuff. But you weren't a mainstream person at that point. Absolutely not. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you were explicitly a non-mainstream person. So there's a thing that happens when something becomes mainstream that you've loved, you know, which is that obviously it gets altered. It becomes different. Uh, and, and, and even if it's been popular before, I mean, I was horrified when Disney made Mary Poppins because I loved the books and the books were nothing like that. I was horrified 
horrified when Batman and Robin became this terrible, kitschy, campy uh, TV show with Adam West. Um, but so I'm sort of wondering, yeah, I mean, obviously there was a grittiness and a kind of, you know, sort of almost post-punk rejection of mainstream culture that was implicit in the original comic book itself. How do you view all the incredibly popular permutations that came after? A, a little bit at arm's length, and, and even listening to some of the, uh, the the man on the street interviews you had conducted, uh, you know, people talking about the purple one and that. And I've got some of the original uh, covers here, and uh, they all have red uh, uh, eye masks and bandanas. <laughs> so uh, things things changed as time went on. And yeah, as a fan, uh, as the as the the TV show came out, uh, the animated series, I. I I watched it, and I, I was in a band, and we did a cover tune of the uh, the theme song at one point. Uh, but yeah, it, it, almost times you were a little irritated that you know this this thing you held precious and, and loved dearly was was changing and, and and reaching a whole other audience in a, in a different fashion, and they had no knowledge uh, at times sometimes of the original comics. And I, I actually, unfortunately, I sold my original printings. <laughs> Uh, to fund a horrible demo tape that my band was making at the time, and I remember <laughs> what was the, what was the band called? I want to know it, it, it the name called, of the band that cost you your. You'll be surprised. <laughs> it's named after a movie. It was called Near Dark. All right, and uh, good movie. Yeah, see, yeah, great, yeah. yeah. See, Jim feels better about that. And uh, you know, at least it was a good movie. I remember arguing with the woman at the comic book store because uh, she, she was pointing out in a in a price guide what they were worth, and uh, she was pointing at the Archie comics that were kind of a spinoff of of the the television show, and I'm like, no, no. These are the ones with the zeros after the first digit. So, uh, yeah. So there was always that, that kind of disconnection for me. Uh, but still, you know, I watched I watched the uh, cartoons and and, and I'm yeah you know, I loved them. Yeah. Let's uh, let's actually hear a little clip from uh, from Randall Love's documentary uh, in which. Uh, Two of the people who are helping uh, sort of speed this adaptation, one of them is from a toy company, and really the toy company was, uh, as we learn in the movie, the drivers, playmates the toy company, were the drivers in deciding that there actually had to be some kind of television adaptation in order to make the toys appetizing and marketable. So you hear also David Wise, who was the original writer on that series, they're talking about making some of these transitions. Most toy guys would realize from day one that You've got to sell multiple characters, figures, and if they look identical or similar, that's going to be tough to do. It's probably the only limitation of turtles I can think of. It's perfect in every other respect. It's unique, it's exciting, a turtle is a turtle. Yeah. So from day one, I think he realized, even in the graphic novels where they all had red bandanas, that there had to be more differentiation of the turtles. If you have four characters, especially four characters who look alike, you want to give them distinct personalities. The only, in the comic, the only way you could tell them apart was by what weapon they were carrying. Now, that ended up being done with color more than anything else. So the bandana colors, the pad colors, and the skin colors. Uh, and then the added initial on the belt buckle was just a way to reinforce that. And the whole idea was that you could immediately tell the difference between the turtles uh, by looking at the figures, whether they were in the package or not. So that'll help Sam Hatch understand why they don't all have red bandanas anymore. Jim, <laughs> so Jim Lawson, I mean, you know, you're sort of in a unique position. I mean, I, in the one, on the one hand, you were part of this 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 early team of artists creating this uh, exciting product, uh, and then you know you watch the product board a big ocean liner and and kind of head out into the biggest possible ocean uh, of mass culture. How did you? Was there any part of you that was kind of going, oh, bye bye, you'll never be the same again? 
you know, there was. You know, what what Sam said just a little while ago was like an, a lot of people weren't even aware that there was a comic book, and that's one of the things I think we struggled with. I I struggled with is as everything else was kind of going crazy and exploding. You know, the comic book struggled to sell at times, and and you know, the black and white book. That's that's basically where it all all stemmed from. And, and so, Randall Lopp, one of the things that has become clear to me, and I, I said this sort of before we got on the air with all this, I'm demographically kind of in a turtle valley in the sense that although I was a comic book nerd, but I was a little bit too old to sort of catch the wave uh, of the Mutant Ninja Turtles. And then you know, the other way you do this is through your kids. My son was born in 1989. He went straight to the Mighty Morphin Power Rangers. God help us all. <laughs> and, sorry and, to hear that. Yeah, so <laughs> not as sorry as I was. But um but, you know, but sort of even just going to school on it for this show, one of the things that occurred to me is they are very, on the one hand, they are absolutely resolutely who you are. If you're a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle, you live in the sewer, uh, you have a rat for a, a sensei. I mean, that's not going to change that much. But really within that rubric, there's an awful lot of changing that goes on. So even watching the, the, the 2014 movie, I was saying to Jim before we went on the air, they're kind of more African-American than I've ever seen them be. I mean, you can sort of change. They, they have those, you know, rigid personality types to a certain degree. You know, one, one is one thing. I mean, Donatello is kind of the scholarly nerd. Mikey is the fun-loving one. But but they also, they, they mutate even even for mutants. They mutate a lot, right? Oh, they do. And, and one of the things that, I mean, people keep asking me now, why do you think they've lasted 30 years? And, and you hit on one of the things here is this, in each iteration, they retain the essence or the aspect that is... Uh, uh, what separates them from other titles, obviously, and makes them interesting and fun and all that. But also there are all these attachments for other elements. So, you know, David Wise in the documentary says he made uh, their dialogue more street and everybody knows what that means or what it meant back then. It's to try and make them more African-American in flavor that was linked to B-boy culture or early hip-hop, however you want to word it. And you know, I think that's awesome. I like things that do that. I like the drift across these different iterations. And so, you know, when you mention you see the new movie and there are changes, well, some people find that an affront, but other people look at it, I'll say I look at it and I say, it's interesting to me to see how much that can vary. You know, the play in the franchise is, is very appealing from, a, from an, I guess, from an outside perspective and observing it. The um, I mean, I, I actually do think one of the nice things, one of the kind of clever little throwaways in the movie is when you're seeing a little bit of their origin story, there's one point where they're peeping up through a, a storm sewer grate onto the street, and somehow or other they're seeing Gwen Stefani do uh, Holler Back Girl. And you realize, well, the, the joke here is they're absorbing, the characters are absorbing the culture of the moment, and so they're becoming more like the moment that they're in right now, which I kind of think is nicely done. Let me just sort of grab a call here from, uh, this is from Sarah in Manchester. <laughs> I, I like the point she's about to make here, but but maybe we, we won't like this point. I don't know. Sarah, are you there? Yes, but you don't know my point. Well, first of all, let me just say, I am a long-time caller, but I seldom listen. But today, it is an important, important topic. And I, I don't mean to come off as, like, snarky or, you know, like, I'm, I'm trolling you guys, but I am trying so hard as a woman to understand what the appeal of, um, like, child toys are to, to grown men yeah, I mean, I, I would like to make a movie about my Easy Bake Oven or my Shrinky Dinks or, but, you know, they, they would be children's movies. They wouldn't get a big budget and a PG-13 rating. And 
I mean, I've seen grown men, members of my own family, go to these movies and pay money and then come home and be like, oh, it was actually pretty cool. So, you know, I, oh, boy. I, I'm, I'm, and, and, I, and I know I sound like I'm just, you know, but, but as, as a female, I don't think there would be a market for, you know, like a real serious Barbie movie. I, I disagree. Well, yeah, my first question for you, Sarah, um, is uh, are, have you actually trademarked Easy Bake Oven the movie? Because uh, <laughs> if not, we might be actually kind of interested in that. Yeah, uh. see, and, and I would do it. Like, like it, it would be good. It would be like the oven would have to take on some kind of mutant aliens right. or something. Yeah, no, the oven would bake stuff that would... <laughs> I don't know. We have we have to have some story meetings about this. So please uh, talk to my people. Uh, well, it's a great question. It's a snarky question, but it's a great question. It's a question that we will pause and digest, and we'll come back after this break, and it'll be the first thing we do. It isn't burgers or French fries that work for turtles of our size. Ice cream, cake, or apple pie. They don't even pass the test, dude. One piece of power. So far, not much interest in my graduated from college living in their parents' basement allergic to foam insulation Bikram Yoga Frogs Project. Webbed fingers crossed. Today's show was produced by Katie Talarski, Betsy Kaplan, and me. Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. The part of Bill Curry was played by Megan Fox. For show pages, articles, and videos of the Faith Middleton Show staff cutting in line in front of Michelangelo at Sally's Pizza, visit our website, WNPR.org. On tomorrow's show, the nose takes a breather, and we bring back an amazing show in which we imagine a life with no language. And now... Back to Colin. Yeah, this is really, of all the shows we've done this year, it's the hardest one to describe, and I won't even try right now. But it did start with this notion based on, on a novel that's out right now. What if you had no capacity for language? You couldn't learn sign language. You couldn't learn anything. And then we found out that there really were people who'd studied that exact phenomenon. So by the time we were done with this show, we had blown our own minds. So uh, we're going to run this show again tomorrow uh, while I'm on my way up to Maine. Uh, so uh, we're talking right now to Jim Lawson, uh, Randall Love, and Sam Hatch. We're talking about the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Randall Love, I'm going to sort of come back to you because, I mean, in a way, I think Sarah's kind of asking a great question. You know, St. Paul says, when I became a man, I put away childish things, except that we don't really do that, right? Yeah. I mean, I don't know. How did you react to her idea? Why can't men give up their toys and move on? Well, I mean, there's a fallacy here, ad hominem in a way. What she's assuming is that the interesting aspect of the story, say, for example, the documentary I did, is the toys. But I would point at the person who I think is in your studio and say that he's a person. And that's what's interesting about the story is what people do. So there's a line in the documentary, Fred Wolf says, I'm pretty sure I can make an animated series about just about anything. And I would say I could make a documentary about just about anything as long as there are human beings doing it. Because what you have is a human story about people who do something. And after we had a screening at Paramount, uh, kind of a tech screening, one of the guys who's in Q&A came over to me and he said, or QC rather, sorry, uh, came over to me and said, you really put the heart in here. And my comment back was, I didn't have to. That's that's in there because we're talking about what people do. So she's right to some degree, people who play with toys, maybe, but people who are interested in what, you know, these 
I don't want to say franchises every time, but but these beloved cultural nuggets or these these memes, whatever you want to call them, these things have a resonance that's interesting. It's tied to our psychology and, you know, we could talk about Carl Jung for a while and maybe that would elevate it to a place where your caller finds, oh, I see what they're doing. I think also, Jim, I'm going to direct this at you for a second, but I was saying to you before we went on the air, like yesterday I had a really hard day and we did a show about suicide that was very disturbing. Uh, Before that, I'd done a a show about politics earlier in the morning, which was disturbing in a different way. I had to write a newspaper column. I had a meeting over at Watkinson School about some forums that we're doing. I was exhausted and I went to this movie and I sat down and I, you know, I mean, I understand it's not Citizen Kane, but I I went and and there were, first of all, these four people who were going to maybe even rescue me if I got in trouble. They weren't people. They were turtles but they, they were rescuing me if I got in trouble and meanwhile they were very busy entertaining me and and I maybe that's a big I mean there's a reason it's called escapist culture right I mean to me that was the gift I was given last night yeah I, I don't some somehow this this idea this intellectual property these these characters they they resonated with people and and I haven't worked for any other you know I haven't worked with Batman or or whatever but Somehow, these guys, I don't know if it's the brothers that they were or uh, the family situation that they were in with Splinter, you know, their sensei, their father. Um, But something really connected and spoke to people about these guys. There's, uh, you know, a heart. Uh, There's the fatherly figure. You know, he's very noble. uh, the brothers looking out for each other—it's—it's it's crazy. But I see that I don't go to, to shows often anymore, but uh, occasionally I still do. And people always come up to me and and tell me that there there was something there. You know, Sam. To me, uh, you know, Sarah's sort of talking about sort of why don't we put away our toys? It's not so much about the putting away the toys, but I think there is this. I mean, if you like any kind of fantasy whether it's Game of Thrones, which is about as adult uh, as this gets, uh, or or Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, which is maybe in a different place on the spectrum, there is still this idea, well, well there just wouldn't it be cool if there was a little bit more to the world than the thing that we see all the time? Absolutely. And it's funny, uh, speaking of the toys, I, I just had a surreal moment about, uh, about a month ago. I, I sold off my lifelong Star Wars collection. And uh, while packing it all up, yeah, Patrick Scahill paid a lot of money for that. I know. I hope he enjoys them. Yeah. Uh, that ad ad has his name right on it. Uh, but I, as I was backing it up, I was actually watching the People versus George Lucas movie on Amazon Prime and had this strange little kind of postmodern uh, <laughs> moment where I was getting rid of this stuff. But at the same time, as I'm moving on beyond my my toys, uh, you know, I still have these old you know turtles uh, reprints of, of the covers and and things like that. So I don't think I can ever quite uh, move on fully from a, a story or something that, that uh, hit me you know, as a kid. And it's in, the interesting thing about Turtles uh, is that you know, that was always the element that was meant to draw your eye, even on the cover. The logo has turtles and huge. But it, as Jim was saying, it was more the teenage element, the brother element, and, uh, and of course, you know, the, the, the wisecracking and the, and the ninja fighting and all that. But it, it, was, it was the characters uh, that really hooked me. You know, uh, Randall, one of the uh, moments in your movie that I found very surprising, uh, partly because I've worked with him a couple of times now and I I know him, uh, therefore, I don't know him, I know him a little tiny bit. Michael Ian Black, it turns out, was for a while a guy who was touring around in a turtle suit uh, and and doing these sort of public appearances (laughs) in this very cumbersome turtle suit with a robotic head. But he describes this trip to Mexico where, I mean, he and some other guy got dispatched over there uh, as kind of an offshoot for this tour and they're over and they're in Juarez, I think, and they're... Mm -hmm. 
and they're up on a roof uh, because there are so many thousands and thousands of little Mexican kids there. And and you know he talks about it being uh, also be, uh, as being kind of a cultural uh, moment and a moment about inequality. These children who, who loved this thing but didn't have the kind of access to it that American children do. But it also reminds you that I mean the main thing this thing does is make you happy for a while. I think that's very clear that we enjoy things that make us happy and, and well should we, right? These kids, he mentions that it told him something sort of cultural or the divide in culture. And it didn't matter about what kind of socioeconomic or cultural or ethnic or whatever divide you want to say, they're reacting to that aspect of it, that fun is, is important. Um, we're, we got a tweet from Nick saying each character represented a friend you had on the playground. That's why it was so great. Sure. I think that's a very keen observation. That's there. good. Sam, that's this good. is like a four hour question for you, but I'm just yeah. going to ask it really quickly. <laughs> I mean, how, how much of culture that you see right now owes something to this? I mean, I don't know. Would there be a raccoon in Gardens of Guardians of the Galaxy? Would there be League of Legends having 45,000 people pack into an arena to watch God knows whatever that is? Uh, I mean, how much do you think kind of grew out of this? It's it's hard to even gauge because uh, just from the, the the comics industry, I mean the the impact it had. Um, yeah, I mean Rocket Raccoon, the the comics character I was introduced to after getting getting hooked on the Turtles comics, and I tripped across him at Buried Under in Manchester. Uh, so yeah, one thing always does tend to lead to another, and uh, yeah, having these anthropomorphic. Uh, you know, do-gooders definitely paves the way and allows you to go and enjoy a film with a talking tree and a talking raccoon and uh, and, and take it for face value and just, you know, let it entertain you. Jim Lawson, I can let you take that one for about 20, 25 seconds. Too. Do you see spillovers into modern culture from the work that you were doing there in the mid-1980s? Hmm. I mean, yeah. Boy, that's a tough question. Um, <laughs> oh. Um, I mean, immediately afterwards, I mean, uh, the Turtles came on uh, right at the beginning of kind of this black and white comic book explosion. I mean, I think there were a few others. Cerebus was probably right at that time. Usagi yeah. Yojimbo, those are the ones I'm most familiar with. Definitely. Um, and then, you know, I can remember the Turtles came out and there was like, uh, what was it, green geriatric jujitsu gerbils or something. I, I remember and, adolescent radioactive black belt yeah. hamsters. Yeah. All right. <laughs> you guys are heading into to geek territory here, I can tell. All right, and we're going to have to wrap things up. We've got a very busy afternoon. We've got to get the uh, the one sheet for the Easy Bake Oven movie uh, out to Hollywood. Uh, Jim and Sam and I are going to be very busy. Thanks very much to Randall Lobb. His uh, documentary, which if you love the turtles... Believe me, there's so many things you don't know. Turtle Power, the definitive history of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Uh, listen to our show tomorrow. If you didn't hear it the first time, it will blow your mind. All right, miss. Describe the men who saved your life. They were um, five foot two, maybe, uh, giant turtles. They had different weapons, but they were wearing masks. Masks? Then we'll never figure out who they are.